We are now joined by our BBC World Service correspondent, Jonathan Fruin, who is looking ahead at what's happening around the world. Good morning, Jonathan. Hi there. Hi. Today marks a month since the tragic earthquake struck Turkey and Syria. What's the latest on how people in those countries are faring? Well, sadly, the chances of finding any further survivors have fallen to zero this far after the disaster. That said, there was something of a miracle last week when a dog was pulled alive from the rubble in Hatay in Turkey after being buried for 23 days. And uh, more than 50,000 people are confirmed to have lost their lives in the disaster and thousands more people are still missing. Those who survived the earthquakes are obviously facing the enormous challenge of trying to rebuild their lives. And uh, for many, their homes have been totally destroyed. At least a million and a half people are now homeless in Turkey alone. Many live in tents near their old homes. One survivor recently poignantly wrote to one of my colleagues who had been reporting on the earthquakes that those of us who are now alive will stay under the rubble until the day we die. Psychologists say the survivors of such a traumatic event will be going through phases. The initial shock, anxiety and fear gets replaced with a state of denial. Whilst it's not easy to cope with a trauma on this sort of scale, experts say expressing feelings and thoughts about what's been experienced is a good first step towards healing. But the concern is that if psychosocial support is not in place for those in need during the grief process, people can end up with serious disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and substance abuse. So a lot of support is needed and it may be a struggle to get all that in place given the scale of what's just happened. Very much so. And there's a lot of attention now being placed on buildings that collapsed in the disaster that maybe should not have should not have collapsed. Well, that's right. More than 160,000 buildings collapsed or were severely damaged in Turkey by the quakes. And that's raised questions about whether the natural disaster's impact was made worse by human failings. For years, experts warned that endemic corruption and government policies meant that many new buildings were unsafe. Today, uh, Turkey's government has said that at least 600 people are under investigation over buildings that collapsed. Around 200 suspects, including construction contractors and property owners, have been arrested. Among those detained is a mayor of one of the towns close to where the quakes hit. Opposition parties and some construction experts accused Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's administration of failing to enforce building regulations and trying to divert overall blame for the disaster. What they say is that government policies have allowed so-called amnesties for contractors who avoided building regulations in order to encourage a construction boom, including in earthquake-prone regions. Mr Erdogan has admitted shortcomings but has appeared to blame fate for the scale of this disaster. On a recent visit to the region, he said, such things have always happened. It's part of destiny's plan. But Mr Erdogan's future is on the line after 20 years in power. Elections are on the horizon later this year, and his pleas for national uh, unity appear to have gone unheeded. At football matches recently, fans have been heard to be chanting things like Erdogan resign and lies, lies, lies. It's happening in a country where outright criticism has been relatively rare in recent years. Hmm. And now staying with Turkey, there are talks later this week between... Turkey and Finland and Sweden about those countries' bids to join NATO, but Turkey holds the key to this membership? Well, that's right. Let's rewind a little to begin with. Sweden and Finland are both countries with a long history of wartime neutrality and staying out of military alliances. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine and their proximity to Russia led to a major shift in public opinion in the country's early last year, with support for joining the NATO Western Military Alliance rising dramatically. For Finns, events in Ukraine were a reminder of history. The Soviets invaded Finland in late 1939, but for more than three months, the Finnish army put up fierce resistance despite being heavily outnumbered. They avoided occupation, but did end up losing around 10% of 
their territory. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, Finns took a long look at their 800 mile or 1300 kilometer border with Russia and wondered if something similar could happen with them. Sweden had also felt endangered in recent years with several reported airspace violations by Russian military aircraft. So both countries applied to join NATO, which would mean in the event of an invasion under NATO's Article 5, an attack on one member state is viewed as an attack on all and military support would therefore be offered from other NATO members to deal with the invasion. It's worth noting that Russia is vehemently opposed to these countries joining the alliance. Vladimir Putin believes expansion of NATO is a direct threat to his country's security. So Sweden and Finland joining would be viewed as a provocation. But as you say, Turkey holds the key. Um, all the other NATO members except Hungary have given their blessing, but any member can veto new joiners and President Erdogan has been holding out. Back in January, there was a controversial series of protests in Sweden, including the burning of a Quran outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm that angered the Turkish president. At the time, Turkey cancelled talks with Sweden and Finland, and it looked as though negotiations might be kicked into the long grass until after Turkey's elections in June, but they are set to resume this week. Sweden, Finland and Turkey signed a memorandum on steps towards Turkish ratification at a NATO summit in Madrid last year, but Turkey's foreign minister recently said that Turkey has, quote, not seen satisfactory steps from Sweden on the implementation of the Madrid memorandum. Turkey accuses Sweden of harbouring what it considers members of terrorist groups. Now, the Swedish government plans to formally decide later this week on a long plan proposal to make it illegal to be part of or to endorse a terrorist organisation, which is one aspect of the Madrid Agreement. The US and other NATO countries are hoping that the two Nordic countries can become members of the alliance at a NATO summit due to be held in July in Lithuania's capital Vilnius. But while Turkey has signalled that it could approve Finland's application, it's given no assurances that it will give Sweden's bid the green light by then. Talks this week might help move things along. As regards the other holdout on the two countries bid Hungary, despite some reservations from Prime Minister Viktor Orban, lawmakers from his party indicated it will be supportive of membership and a parliamentary vote is likely to take place in the second half of this month. A lot of moving parts, Jonathan. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to take all of that in. Um, thank you for, for taking us through that. Now, there's a major summit between France's President Macron and Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in Paris on Friday. Yes, it's the first full-scale summit between the two nations since 2018. And over the last few years, relations between the two countries have been, should we say, frosty. The aftermath of Brexit caused significant challenges to the relationship. And I think it's fair to say there was a degree of mistrust between Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson when he was prime minister. Things didn't seem to improve much in the short period when Liz Truss was in charge. She was asked during her leadership campaign last summer whether Emmanuel Macron was a friend or foe and responded by saying that the jury was out. President Macron responded to those remarks by saying that the UK, quote, is a friendly nation regardless regardless of its leaders, sometimes in spite of its leaders. Now, when actually in office, Liz Truss did say that Emmanuel Macron was a friend, but the incident sort of set the tone. That said, plans for a Britain-France summit to take place in 2023 were announced during Liz Truss's premiership and finalised after Rishi Sunak was in office in January this year. So this week's meeting is definitely a sign of thawing relations between Britain and its key European Union allies since the Boris Johnson era. A thaw in this case is, is a good thing. Yes, I think so. And uh, I mean, if we look at the issues that are likely to be on the agenda, one that was expected to be a cloud over proceedings when the summit was confirmed in January was the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, which governs post-Brexit trade between mainland Britain and Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, but on the island of Ireland. The protocol was designed to ensure a free-flowing border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the European Union. But it caused all sorts of headaches when it came to the free flow of medicines, pets, and certain foodstuffs from Britain to Northern Ireland as it put a new customs border between the two in the Irish Sea. But significant progress was made last week between the EU and the UK with 
with announcement of the so-called Windsor framework, which looks as though it will help resolve a lot of the issues that have been causing problems there. It's hoped by many that this may eventually lead to the restarting of a power sharing government for Northern Ireland, which has been stalled over the Northern Ireland protocol in recent times. So I imagine there'll be some celebration of that progress at the summit. The Prime Minister's spokesman says this week's event is an opportunity to deepen cooperation between the UK and France in a huge range of areas, including security, climate and energy, the economy, migration and shared foreign policy goals. Ukraine will no doubt be on the agenda. A lot of electricity gets traded between Britain and France. And of course, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy security has been a huge issue. But I'll pick up on just one other area there, which is migration. Tens of thousands of asylum seekers made a perilous crossing of the channel between France and Britain in small boats last year. The number of people doing so has expanded exponentially over the last few years, and it's become a huge political issue in the UK, with many saying they they should be welcomed and given shelter, but others arguing that the cost of housing people in hotels whilst their asylum claims of process is too expensive and that they shouldn't be able to get here in the first place. Britain wants greater cooperation with France to try and prevent the boats setting out from French beaches. And there has been progress in recent months with the New Deal putting UK funded officers on French beaches to patrol departures and British officers embedded in French led control rooms to improve coordination. But I suspect there might be further developments on this issue at the summit this week. The, the British government is thought to be planning to unveil a tough crackdown this week on those arriving in the UK illegally involving deportation with no right of return, possibly without recourse to human rights law. And that may not go down brilliantly with France. It might not indeed. Now, one more thing to look ahead to, which is the culmination of this year's awards season with the Oscars being handed out in Los Angeles this weekend. What should people be looking out for there, do you think? Well, it looks as though the madcap adventure Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is likely to win big, having secured 11 nominations in total. The film follows a woman played by Michelle Yeoh who hops through the so-called multiverses, which are like parallel versions of history all happening at the same time as different versions of herself. I have to say, I struggled to keep up a bit when I watched it, but it was quite a riotous adventure at the same time. The remarkable First World War epic drama, a German language adaptation of the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, comes in second place with nine nominations, just like The Banshees of Inner Sharon, a black comedy which tells the story of two once great friends living on a fictitious Irish island near the start of the 20th century and who have a major falling out. Speaking of Ireland, Irish stars account for a quarter of all 20 lead and supporting actor and actress nominations with four of those featuring in the Banshees of Inner Sharon, Barry Keoghan, who's nominated for his role as Dominic in that film, has a remarkable story. He passed through 13 foster homes as a child and his mother was unable to take care of him owing to drug addiction. And uh, it's also a strong year for actors of Asian descent with four nominated, Michelle Yeoh, Ki Hui Kwan, Stephanie Hsu and Hong Chao, and that's the most in a single year. Kwan found fame as a child actor in the mid-1980s in The Goonies and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but stopped acting when he found it hard to find roles. Everything Everywhere All at Once is his first major film in more than 30 years. And there was some controversy at the Oscars last year. I mean, it's an understatement with Will Smith and his slap of Chris Rock. But the Academy, which organises the event, will be hoping to avoid a rerun of that. But have there been any controversies so far this year? Well, yeah, no doubt they're going to be hoping to avoid anything similar. There's nothing on that level so far, but there is one issue that I'll mention, which is the nomination for British actress Andrea Riseborough, who was a last-minute and unexpected candidate for Best Actress for her role in Two Leslie, where she plays an alcoholic single mother. Her surprise inclusion, while black actresses were shut out, prompted much debate in Hollywood. Her nomination came after a string of Hollywood A-listers campaigned on her behalf, hosting screenings of Two Leslie for Academy members and posting their appreciation of the film on social media. Now, that's not against the rules, of course. Lots of studios and actors' representatives 
Conservatives campaign for Oscar nominations. But there was some concern that people around Andrew Riseborough had been campaigning negatively about other actresses to try and prevent them being included, which is against the rules. The Academy examined the campaign that led to Riseborough's nomination and decided not to revoke it. But it added, we did discover social media and outreach campaigning tactics that caused concern. In any case, it's not long till the awards are dished out now. The event kicks off late afternoon, Sunday, Los Angeles time. Well, we're wishing everyone all the very best and you and your team all the best for the coming week. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Have a good day. You too.